The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, anteater nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my very, very special guest today is 2021 Nobel Laureate in Economics, Professor David Card. Because of COVID, Professor Card and several of his laureate colleagues were unable to go to Stockholm last year for the special Nobel Prize ceremony. Instead, they received their Nobel medals at UCI's Beckman Institute back on December 8th, which was carried live via technology around the world. At the end of this year, if all goes well and continues to go well with the pandemic, he and all the 2021 Nobel winners will formally be recognized along with this year's 2022 Nobel winners in Sweden. In the meantime, it's great to catch up with Professor Card. We're going to hear all about his career, his research, and being awarded the world's most recognized prestigious acknowledgement. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Professor Card. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Super, super. Well, let's just start from the top. I always like to ask, you know, where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? I grew up in um, rural Ontario, about 60 miles northwest of the city of Toronto on a dairy farm. Growing up on a farm is a great thing for a boy. I got to hang out with my father all the time before I went to school. So I used to like to hang out with him and he he was the local repairman as well as a farmer. So we, I helped him do, well, of course, the way a four-year-old would, four or five-year-old, I helped him uh, do a lot of repairs. And then uh, later on in my youth, I did a lot of reading. Uh-huh. Interesting. You like to work with machines and things and fix things, and but then you got well, into yeah, reading. Yeah, yeah. My dad was, I taught, he taught me how to do um uh, welding, like arc welding, electric welding, and also gas welding. And um, we had quite a few pieces of machinery that we could, um, you know, or things that we could use to to try and fix these farm implements that were breaking all the time. Did you always know that you would go to university that, you know, growing up on a farm, was that part of the conversation? Oh, sure. Yeah. He came from a large family and I think six of his eight siblings went to university. One became a university professor, even when his, his oldest brother. Oh, what did he uh, teach? Electrical engineering. Oh, okay. I ended up at Syracuse University. 
Okay. For much of his career. So I have read about a farming analogy uh, regarding economics where you talk about how the conundrum where a good year for farming isn't necessarily a good year for the farmer. Was that something that, you know, kind of a question that you thought that's, that's interesting. Can you? Yeah, no, definitely. That, that conversation came about someone asked me how I became an economist and I explained that I was um, in college. I was um, a major in, I was sort of intending to major in in physics and um, my girlfriend at the time uh, was taking an economics class and she was struggling a little bit with some of the formulas. It was a pretty advanced textbook for the time by Richard Lipsy. It had a f- set of formulas in it about um, how demand and supply work. So she was asking me if I could read it and kind of translate it for her and go over it with her. And I started reading the book and found it quite fascinating. And it was a chapter on agricultural markets. And I found that um, extremely compelling. I think that most economists would agree that one area where economic ideas, simple economic ideas of demand and supply work best is in these simple agricultural markets. Unfortunately, I've then moved into labor economics, and that's probably one of the places where they work the least well. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. How do you decide to go to Queen's University, which is Kingston, Ontario, Canada, right? Two of my aunts, two of my dad's sisters had gone there. It was far away, you know, pretty far away from home. I didn't want to be too close to home. It was actually by luck. It was extremely good economics department at that time. It's fallen on a bit of harder times now, but at that time it was a very prestigious department and and I had really great education there in in economics. Interesting. You you said it's it's not quite what it used to be. Um, has it just been an economic thing for the school? They, they just haven't had enough money to keep it up? Why? why? Um, well, I think it's difficult. The economics profession is very competitive and um, economists are constantly moving around. And that's a small town. And it's a little bit harder for people in the modern era where, where a lot of professors uh, have a partner who also needs a job. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've had a hard time with that. I think the, uh, also the administration of the university maybe has gone in a different direction and wanted to focus on the medical school and, and some of the sciences. Perhaps. Gotcha. I, that's what I've heard. I don't know for sure. Gotcha. And that school is located, that's above the Great Lakes on Lake Ontario, right? It, I would imagine it gets kind of cold there sometimes. Oh, yeah. Well, it's about <laughs> this. It's marginally warmer i think than where i grew up oh there is the the end of lake ontario and it does freeze in the winter in fact Uh, off the coast of kingston there's a an island in the winter you nowadays i guess you don't but back then it was routinely when it froze you would drive across the island on the ice wow (laughs) wow okay and what did you initially study in college I started out in standard science prep mm-hmm. classes. So first year I took like chemistry, physics, a couple of different math classes, biology. Mm-hmm. So then you, you you read this economics book, you got interested in economics. And so you graduate in 1978. Did you know right away that you'd go to grad school? By then I did. I had the good fortune to work as a research assistant for at that time, one of the younger assistant professors in, in economics there, a guy named Charles Beach, he taught a class and, and thought I would be a good RA, I guess. He hired me to work in the summer. Prior to that, I'd had a couple of years as an intern at General Motors. And so that was kind of an alternative. I possibly could have 
followed up, but I, I found I didn't think I was going to be a great fit at GM. Mm-hmm. You know, what was it about the work? Just not very interesting for you? Well, uh, GM was, you know, at that time was bigger than it even than it is now, but it, it was very corporate. And I was in the industrial engineering department and there was a lot of um, peculiarities. I, I did, you know, not having anybody in my family who worked in large corporations, I didn't really know how they worked. I, I subsequently found out that a lot of the same things that, you know, were going on there still persist in, in American business. <laughs> but I, I could see that that was <laughs> going to probably not be the ideal fit for me. Kind of like office politics and so forth or, or what? Well, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made. And, um, a lot of people in the, you know, in the engineering groups and so on are, are working on potential solutions. And at the end of the day, somebody has to make a decision, mm. but it, it's not entirely clear that, that all of that science is really driving the decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the, yeah, that that's very true. And, you know, some of the most inspired business choices probably would seem very peculiar by, uh, you know, by science basis. Right, 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 right. Okay. So you decide to go to grad school. How do you decide where to go? Well, that actually was very easy. Um, there were at at Queens at that time three, uh, at least three, I think three, or maybe even four. You know, three assistant professors who'd all recently graduated from Princeton. Oh. One of them was uh, was the Charles Beach I just mentioned. Um, one was Michael Abbott. He was my thesis advisor. He was a labor economist. Charles worked on um, uh, econometrics. And there was a third one who's still there, James McKinnon. He worked on um, uh, econometrics and urban economics. And so there was a very strong connection, and especially in the labor economics area. And so Charles and, and uh, Michael Abbott wrote letters of recommendation for me. And um, they kind of thought that I would be a good fit at Princeton because their advisor, you know, was a relatively young guy that they thought highly of. And he called me up and went, you know, in the spring of that admission year and said, I should go to Princeton. And um, it seemed like a good fit. And it turned out to be quite a good fit. And we're, we're still friends. <laughs> I had lunch with him last week. <laughs> uh, very good. Very good. So what was it? You know, once you went to, to Princeton and you were there for a while, what, what was it that you really liked? Well, um, Hmm. So in the early 1980s, um, Princeton was probably, by kind of a historical accident, the best department in the country. There was a weird combination of very innovative people working in economic theory, like Joe Stiglitz was there uh, at the time, um, just, you know, this is before he won the Nobel Prize. A um, couple of people who became very well known working on uh, finance economics, San- Sanford Grossman was there. There was a guy who was teaching micro theory, kind of innovative, new style of micro theory, pretty formal, pretty mathematical, named Hugo Sonnenschein. And he was very influential in getting a lot of people moving to study the new topic, which was game theory. Uh, and so he he advised a whole generation, the next generation of game theorists. Um, and then Orly Eschenfelter was my advisor, and he was kind of the, the leading person turning out modern labor economists. Um, and so we had a really unusual combination of people working in the sort of game theory and theory and econometrics, but, but also in this sort of more applied area. Um, yeah. So there's very, very good students uh, for, for, for quite a few years. After I came back as a faculty member, 
there were a couple of cohorts of students that were just fantastically good students. Can you distinguish what game theory is? Is it, is it what we think it is or you know, what was? <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe the title might have been invented by John von Neumann, the mathematician who apparently loved to play poker. <laughs> <laughs> but one version of game theory is, is it's a way to analyze strategic things like poker games. You know, how mm. often should you um, bluff? Mm. How should you try and bluff? Mm. And actually, everybody knows one very simple version of that, which is um, rock, paper, scissors, right? <laughs> you, the only way to play rock, paper, scissors is to be completely unpredictable. If you, you know, if you always do rock or always do scissors, you, you lose, right? So the only way to play that, and he figured that out, Von Neumann figured that out, lots of, you know, much more complicated versions of that. So game theory is that kind of thing, but, but writ large. So analyzing things like um, if I am a firm and I enter a market and build a plant, uh, what will my competitors do and how will I respond to that and how will they respond to that and so on. Oh, wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So kind of like looking at it on a macro level, like, you know, not in terms of, you know, customers and how much will we sell, but like competitors and, and so forth. Yeah, it's more, it's more about the way that the agents making the choices, the people making the choices or the firms making the choices are responding to each other. So the, yeah. the version of it for the, at the person level is like the fight you have when you're in college with your roommate over who's going to clean the bathroom. <laughs> so, and everybody knows the solution to that. It's the person that has the worst tolerance for dirt. So they, they end up having to <laughs> clean the bathroom. The other one waits them out. <laughs> oh, that's so we're funny. all familiar with little versions of game theory. Uh, very good. Well, you know, I think people many times who are not in economics or haven't taken the economics course are confused by what economics is, especially when we've talked a little bit right now. And actually, over the years, because when I was in junior college, community college, my economics courses were in the business school. And so actually, uh, actually, in, in my, you know, four-year degree college also. But then when I came to UCI, it was in social sciences. And so there's this kind of duality. And actually, as I've been, you know, researching you over the last couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, it really is a cross between social science and business. I mean, am I getting close to the to what your definition would be or or not? Well, I, <laughs> so that there's a part of economics that studies what firms do. You know, um, uh, how does Amazon set prices uh, uh, and how do they compete with Walmart? That's a very big part of the of economics there's a part that studies um individual workers like what would happen if we um change the retirement age for social security would people work longer or save more or less that's closer to the kind of things that i work on there's a part that's about the federal reserve like what's the federal reserve going to do how are they interpreting all this news about inflation and what kind of um, a model of the economy do they have that is telling them whether they should you know, try to raise interest rates right now or ease back on purchases of bonds and so on. So that's another part. And then there's a part that is uh, about how to do statistical analysis, how to um, take data and analyze it. And nowadays we spend a lot of time in my field on, on that part of it, like trying to understand what's the best setting where we could try and figure out whether it's really true that something causes something or whether they're just correlated with each other. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So that's a huge part of economics as well. Gotcha. It, it just excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is 2021 Nobel Laureate in Economics, Professor David Card. And we're just getting to know him, and he's kind of brought us up to speed where he's in grad school at Princeton. And I think we're getting to the part where you actually – graduate from Princeton in 1983, but you were teaching the year before that at the University of Chicago. Was it some type of situation where you were able to teach in in Chicago, but also, you know, finishing up at Princeton? Okay, so that's that, that's something that's different <laughs> today than it is back then. Uh-huh. So back then, people finished their PhD in four years. And of course, that's pretty hard to do. So normally in the last year, your fourth year, you would start to look for a job. And the hope would be by the end of that year, you, your dissertation would be done. So in the spring of 1982, I was looking for a job and had a bunch of different choices. And I chose to go to the University of Chicago. At that time, it was known as the University of Chicago Business School. It's now called the Booth Business School for my first job. And I left Princeton and left copies of my thesis on, on the desk of my advisor and the, the three people who were reading it. Now, it turned out they didn't get around to reading it <laughs> for a few months. And so my dissertation is dated 1983, but it was finished in 1982. So I showed up at Chicago without, you know, without the dissertation formally completed, but that was pretty standard back then. Gotcha. And then are you offered a position at Princeton? So... Then you went back there to teach? Yeah. So then the year I was in Chicago, a couple of things happened. One thing happened was that uh, MIT, which is the most prestigious department in economics in the country back, back then and still, they made a job offer to Orly Eschenfelder, my former advisor. And he said, well, I need to hire some people if I'm going to stay at Princeton. And so they made an effort to hire me. And um, this is probably going to be hard for if there's any economists listening, but at that time, my teaching load at Chicago was five classes. I had to teach five classes. And Princeton said, well, come to Princeton and we'll only teach two classes. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm coming. <laughs> There's simple economics right there. <laughs> there yeah. Now, no longer does anybody teach five classes at Chicago <laughs> in the business school, but that was kind of what people did. There was a lot more teaching per year. Gotcha. How about... Any specific areas when you were in grad school that you, you know, focused in on that really caught your eye and that you were, you felt like you honed your skills? Worked on a bunch of different projects when I was in grad school. One, one was kind of the main paper out of my dissertation, which was on, um, so in the old days when the U.S. had a lot of um, unionized uh, establishments like a General Motors and places like that, the wage contracts that people had were automatically indexed to inflation. They had a, what was called a cost of living adjustment clause, mm-hmm. COLA clause. And I wrote my thesis on how those clauses were different in different uh, union contracts, um, collected up a bunch of data on these, these cost of living clauses and how they affected wages and showed how that was related to differences across the industries. And later on t- after that, I, did, I continued to do quite a bit of research on on these collective bargaining agreements. Uh, actually, I just, they're no longer of that much interest in the United States and Canada where I, where I grew up because there's almost not very many of them anymore. 
but they're still quite prevalent in, in Europe. And I just finished a, a paper recently on collective bargaining agreements in Portugal, uh, which are a pretty important part of wage setting there. So it was a good experience and helpful. I, I worked yeah. on um, a bunch of other topics at the same time that I've continued to work on on and off over the years. So, you know, in working on like collective bargaining agreements, did you reach any particular conclusions? Well, a big issue back then, and to some extent still today, was do trade unions set wages too high? Mm. And as a result of that, put themselves out of business. <laughs> and that continued to be a topic of great interest, basically still is of great interest in Europe. But in the 1980s, uh, that I ended up writing a couple of papers on that topic and also about strikes, the big part of um, interest in that topic in my side came, my, I did, wrote my undergraduate thesis on strikes mm-hmm. and uh, I collected up some data from Canada on strikes and showed how the strike intensity was related to different factors in the aggregate economy. Mm-hmm. But eventually it became possible to link the strikes that you could see to the actual contract negotiations that they resulting out of and then say well if you had a strike afterwards is the wage higher or lower that was a big question I wrote a couple papers on that Hmm. Uh, so those are those are the kind of topics that I worked on but I would say the biggest question and still probably one of the biggest questions in in labor economics is um, is there some tendency for uh, wages to get pushed up too high and Mm -hmm. as a result of that cause problems and you know in some ways that's a huge concern and one of the leading ideas in, in all of economics, starting from Keynes. So what's your feeling? Do they drive wages up too high? Well, at, at that time, it's hard to say for sure uh, in the case of union contracts. At that time, my view was that unions aren't that stupid. <laughs> that they, they're, you know, they're they're raising wages and they're getting, they might be reducing with employment somewhat, but they're not putting themselves out of business. Yeah. Some views were, you know, that that for some reason union leaders and union members were so aggressive or so entitled that they would put themselves out of business. But nowadays we don't have unions anymore, uh, mostly mm-hmm. in the United States, and mm-hmm. nevertheless, people still kind of act like there's some inexorable force that's pushing up wages. Mm. Uh, so that, you know, a major thing that I've thought about a lot in the last 10 years is uh, like, how are wages being set? Uh, who's setting them? And is, is, should we be presuming that if we could just lower wages, the economy would be better? Mm. Professor, have you looked at the homelessness situation? It just seems to be getting worse and worse. It seems like the the haves and have nots, you know, that gap is becoming more and more. And is that an economic question being looked at? Oh, sure. I mean, there's um, many economists have worked on it in various ways. I think one of my uh, former students, Till von Vochter down at UCLA, has been working on that problem. You know, certainly Los Angeles has (laughs) a lot of uh, big issue of homelessness, as we do in, in my area in Northern California. So there's a lot of questions about what causes homelessness. You know, it seems to be the case that homelessness is affected by the cost of housing. So if you have a major run-up in the cost of housing, you end up having more people homeless, Uh, for sure. uh, It seems like it's related to underlying problems at the 
the population is facing. So for instance, when they deinstitutionalized a lot of um, formerly institutionalized patients in the early 1980s, homelessness went up a lot and it's kind of stayed high. Mm. A lot of people that you see homeless obviously have many, many other problems, mental mm. problems, drug addiction problems, and so on. Mm. Uh, so usually I think advocates for homeless people are kind of advocating for a package of things, but it, it's a very complicated problem. I mean, one thing that I think shocks non-Americans who visit the United States is the kind of tolerance for homeless people out on the street, mm. in some cities at least. We don't have a, you know, a, a very inclusive safety net system that might be helping such people in other places. So that's a choice that we've made uh, over many, many years. Mm. So I think that one of the choices of you know, not having this uh, you know, extensive safety net system is partially that we have a certain fraction of homelessness. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've never realized that before. It's, it's interesting. Okay, well... You were at Princeton, I think, for about 14 years, if I have it correct. And then do you go to Berkeley right away or do you do some other assignments between Princeton and going to UC Berkeley? I had a year sabbatical from Princeton and went and spent a year at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Science, which is a research institute on the Stanford campus. Oh, okay. 1996-97. And during that time, it was kind of thinking, well, that might be a time to move. My wife uh, was pretty interested in possibility of moving out of Princeton. Gotcha. And yeah. And then you got an opportunity to go to UC Berkeley and yeah. that's what you did. So, you know, I noticed that you're, you're actually your formal title is the class of 1950 professor of economics. I'm just kind of intrigued who or what is the class of 1950? <laughs> that, oh, uh, it's a kind of a pretty standard thing that, so that class actually has one really well-known donor in it, Mr. Moore, the one of the main people in Intel. Oh. So Moore's oh. Law, the guy who invented Moore's Law. Oh, okay. Which said that, you know, the rate of um, computational power expands very quickly. So I think maybe in their 25th anniversary of the graduation of the class or 30th or something, they put together a fundraising effort and he and others contributed and they used the funding to create an endowed professorship. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm the holder of that chair. I have been since 1996. I've met with the class. Now I have to say the class is getting a little frail. <laughs> many of them, many of them actually served in world war II, the men and didn't finish their degree until 1950. So some of them were born in wow. you know, 19, 1918 or 19 or 20. And so most of those people have, of course, passed on, but there's still a few left, uh, mostly women. Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't been to a meeting for a couple of years, but I think the last meeting I went to was maybe three years ago or four years ago. Um, gotcha. And they're, they're big supporters of the university. And, um, you know, we, we really, you know, as uh, public universities don't have the same network as a place like Princeton, but we, we try as best we can to, you know, like make them feel like they've made a big contribution and they have made a huge contribution to in my case to the university yeah. you know. oh, very good and then when you go to berkeley do you start the center for labor economics yeah mm -hmm. i do can you tell us a little bit about that at princeton there was a, a center for labor economics that had been founded in the 1920s it was called the industrial relations section it was originally focused on studying unions and things like that it was funded by John Rockefeller, 
Rockefeller's family owned a large number of businesses all across the country. And one of the businesses they owned was a mining company in Colorado. And people in your audience may have heard of the Ludlow Massacre, which was an event where a strike in, in Colorado ended when the National Guard came in and shot quite a few of the strikers. And so <laughs> Rockefeller and his advisors were very worried about this, you know, union movement in the just after World War One. And they put up a lot of money in different universities to have research institutions. And one of them was at Princeton. The other ones are all kind of faded away, but the one at Princeton persisted because Princeton was very good at hanging on to the money. <laughs> so they have a huge endowment that, and they've also done a good job of hiring people to work in the topic and keep the topic alive. So what are you guys working on there now? Anything specific that you can describe? Yeah, lots of different things. I have a new project. Actually, it was mentioned in the newspaper two weeks ago. It was written jointly with a colleague at, at Stanford, David Chan, and he is a MD, PhD, and works part-time at the Veterans Administration. And a third person, Lowell Taylor, from Carnegie Mellon, and his wife was a nurse at the VA for many years, uh, a research nurse at the VA. And in conversations with Lowell and his wife, we started to get interested in the question of how veterans, when they get to be 65, can use the VA or they can go to Medicare. And we got interested in the question of, okay, if you chose one or the other, is it better? Is it worse? <laughs> and um, Melissa, her name is Melissa Taylor. She was very strong belief that the VA was actually quite good medical care and that probably most veterans would be better off going to the VA than going to a regular hospital. Uh, and so we met up with Dave and he had access to the data and he was very interested. And so the three of us put a project together and we studied people who go to the veterans administration. Well, they're veterans, they're eligible for Medicare and they can go to the VA. So they have Good. kind of a lot of choices. Yeah. And then something happens and they have an ambulance come and pick them up. Mm. And we use the idea that ambulances kind of have preferences for hospitals. So you get picked up by one ambulance, you go to this hospital, you pick up another, you go to that hospital. And we use that, that research design to try and say, well, at the end of the day, it's not your, your choice. It's just the ambulance company. Let's imagine it's the luck of the draw, which ambulance company you get, which we, we think is actually true. Then we could kind of do a nice comparison between those that ended up at the VA and those who went to the regular hospitals. And it turns out that going to the VA is in fact better for you. So Melissa was right. <laughs> <laughs> That was um, a pretty important, I think, policy-wise, because there's a lot of discussion about, well, should the VA continue to provide their, its own services, or should they try and um, gradually fade out and just pay for other people to do the work? Yeah. I actually started Medicare in the last year, and I've been quite impressed about how much it covers. And I kind of walk in, I flash my card, and they're like, great. You're good. Well, Medicare is um, the best insurance you can get these days, <laughs> but it's extraordinarily expensive. <laughs> well, you know, that's, yeah, there is an additional, I yeah. do have to pay a supplement. So yeah, you have to pay a supplement, but actually what the government pays to cover you is quite a bit more than they pay uh, in the VA. So that's a, an issue that people are wondering about. So I have done a study of that actually. So there's a lot of people when they turn 65, exactly turn 65, they start to turn on the medical services. So you see a big increase in knee replacements and hip replacements mm. at, at exactly 65. You see an increase in uh, cornea replacements. <laughs> uh, you see, and maybe it's a coincidence. It just happens then. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. 
my interest in that was uh, kind of a different, slightly different question, which is so we get to 65, finally, everybody has access to good care. Does that equalize differences in care between whites and blacks or between highly educated and less educated people? Mm. It turned out it actually disequalizes it. And it's because of this thing you mentioned, which is the supplemental insurance. So all the, you know, the highly educated white people, they all get the supplemental insurance. And so they basically just turn on the spending. <laughs> and a lot of the less advantaged people, they have Medicare, but they, they, ha- they don't have that, you know, really good supplements. And so gotcha. they are much less likely to do that. Gotcha. <laughs> so gotcha. I always say the U.S. is the one country where universal insurance is less equal. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So what is it about the VA? Yeah. And you said that that's better. What is it that they don't have supplemental? It's just across the board. So there's a couple of things that seem to stand out. One thing for sure was if you go into the VA and you're a veteran, they find your records right away. So they've got like an integrated care system. So even if you go to a different VA than the one you've been going to, or don't get the same doctor, you come in the emergency room and they have a very good system of tracking you and finding out about you. Mm. And that's not the case for most people in the outside market. One of the things we looked at was if you looked at people who sort of always go to the same hospital, they do a bit better in the Mm. regular system. So Mm. partially it seems like maybe they've got your records maybe they can figure out, okay, the last time we saw this person, they had these conditions. Now they have these, we better do this right now. We're looking at our outcome at 28 day mortality. So they have to do something and make a, you know, this group of people brought in, they're over 65, they're veterans brought in by ambulance. They have a pretty high risk of death and you have to make a decision quickly Mm. to do the right thing. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI conversation show. And my special guest today is economics Nobel laureate and professor, Dr. David Card. And we've been tracking his progression in his career from going to grad school. And he's currently at UC Berkeley as an economics professor for upwards of, is it 20 years, professor? How long have you been at Berkeley? Uh, 26, I believe. Yeah. Okay, 26 years. So maybe we've gotten to the point now where on October 11th, 2021, you receive a phone call in the morning. Can you describe what that phone call was all about? <laughs> well, it, it's, they call it, I guess they call at 11 a.m. Stockholm time. Okay. And that's 2 a.m. our time. And I had been um, visiting my mom uh, in Canada did it actually a few days before to attend a memorial service for my grandmother who passed away uh, much earlier in the year. But this was the first time that they'd been able to do it because of COVID. And uh, so I came back and was having a shower. I got to San Francisco airport pretty late and drove to um, my wife and I have a house in Sonoma County. And I came up, got to the house about one, one o'clock, was having a shower and my wife's phone. I just got an email that the phone is ringing in our house in Berkeley. So she answered it listened to the tape and said, well, this is blah, 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 kind of a vague Swedish sounding accent. And we thought it was my old friend in Guelph where I'm from, Tim. And we thought, oh, this is Tim having a a really good joke. (laughs) 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 Because I'd seen him just before and, you know, he'd asked me about 
about this Nobel Prize thing because I guess he somehow knew. And I said, well, I'm not expecting any phone calls. That's what I told him. He was just randomly teasing you about, oh, maybe someday you'll get the I don't Nobel. know exactly. Yeah, yeah. maybe he, <laughs> I don't know exactly how it came up, but anyway, yeah. it somehow came up. But anyway, it turned out that they left a phone number, which had a weird country code in front of it. So then we looked that up and said, oh, crap, it's Sweden. So maybe we'd better call them back. Yeah. Yeah. So was this like 2 a.m. in the morning or was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, well, oh wow. Quarter past by then. Yeah. Oh, my. So uh, you call them back and they said, yeah. Who do they say they are? The Nobel? As I recall, there's a, a committee of Swedish economists and the person who talked to me was one of these uh, economists who I've met, I think, once or twice before. And he said, you know, it's him and he's got some good news, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh-huh. then they ask you a question. What They ask you whether you agree to accept the prize. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I guess with that, I'm not entirely, I think that entails you have to give a lecture. Okay. I've heard about this lecture. Have you done that yet? Yeah, I'm done. Oh, okay. What was the lecture on? It's on, for my Nobel Prize, they kind of cited research I had done on trying to improve our understanding about um, labor markets using what they call natural experiments. Yeah. yeah. And they specifically mentioned a couple of papers that I had done, one on um, the effects of the Mariel boat lift. Uh, right. And yeah. another on the New Jersey, Pennsylvania minimum wage paper that I wrote with Alan Kruger. Right. And um, so I wrote a, a, my essay is, or Nobel talk is sort of a discussion about the history of the, of, of these ideas about how we would use different kinds of evidence in economics and the evolution of this um, eventual adoption of this natural experiments type approach. The recognition that you are acknowledged for is how, you know, back in the you know, mid to late seventies, when I was taking economics course, they were very theoretical, you know, theory oriented. And I've heard you talk about like it being a progression. Other people say as it was revolutionary, you were using real world situations like in New Jersey, there was an increase in the minimum wage, but oh, just across the state line in, I think it was Pennsylvania, they did not raise the minimum wage. So you could literally do a test like what are the effects of this wage increase do i have that right yeah how does that idea percolate did it seem just natural or did it seem like wow nobody's really done this before let's go for it no i i mean people had done variants of that for many many years one of the most famous examples of that approach is the guy and his name is is escaping me at the moment but he was a, a health researcher in early 1800s in, in London, England, and he was trying oh. to figure out what caused cholera. Uh-huh. And there were different theories about that. And one theory was it was the water, and one theory was it was you know the air, basically. Uh-huh. And he realized that a part of London gets its water from one place, one set of pipes, and another part gets its water from another set of pipes. Uh-huh. And the one set of pipes are much further up the river. And on the other side, you know, upstream of a major sewage system that was dumping water. You know, this is back in that day when they did untreated sewage. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that everybody who got cholera, or not everybody, but a large fraction of the people who got cholera were in the area served by the one set of pipes versus the other. Wow. 
And so that was a, an example of the same sort of uh, understanding of, um, you know, like you, there may be evidence out there that's quite decisive, but you just have to kind of go and do a little digging, basically. And um, so, yeah, I had done the, the Mario Botliff study I actually did before the minimum wage study, the, the New Jersey, Pennsylvania study. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's another really interesting one where, well, I guess, 1980, Fidel Castro lets a, about 125,000 people immigrate from the island who come to the United States. About half of them come and stay in Miami and the rest of them are spread around. So your study looked at the effects of the wage situation and the uh, employment situation of the people in Miami. Were they adversely affected by this huge immigration flow? Is that true? Yeah. So I think most of your listeners will know about this from Scarface, the movie. Because okay. uh, he was the Al Pacino character was a Marielito. He oh. came at the beginning of the remember the beginning of the movie. There's a bunch of people kind of lining up and being processed, and he was one of them. Oh. And at the time, Castro kind of, in a, in a way to kind of mess up the situation, he released a bunch of prisoners into <laughs> the let them go too, and they were yeah. all getting transported over to Miami by um, Cuban expats who'd been there for 10, 15 years. So uh, anyway, that's the same story. Uh, I, I got interested in it. There was a student at, at um, an undergraduate at, at um, Princeton who had written a, a senior thesis on it. And we talked a lot about it. And he had done a little bit of work on it in his thesis, said this was kind of interesting. And I realized, OK, this is this is really a simple thing that I could do to try and understand a little bit better uh, what was the effect of immigration? Because usually the problem is the immigrants go where there's good labor markets. Because, you know, why wouldn't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it makes it very hard to sort out, well, are the, are the immigrants really doing any any harm to the other people in the labor market or not? And I thought, well, the Marriott Boatlift didn't do anything, then that seems like a pretty important thing to discover. I guess you discovered that it didn't, which is like intuitively surprising to me. You, you found out that what was it, about 65,000 people? 70, you know, yeah. 70,000 people come to Miami and it really doesn't affect wages or employment. Yeah, that's true. That's what I found. Um, I was a bit surprised. Now, I should say, by the way, that it could have had an effect, could have lowered wages by one or two percent. I didn't have the ability to detect really small changes. Uh-huh. But subsequent work has looked at other big migration events. Uh, probably the most interesting one is the big mass migration coming out of USSR after Russia, the, the old uh, Soviet Republic collapse. There was a huge number of um, Russian Jews who then immediately went to Israel, 1990, 91. And so that was a massive, massive migration. And it basically <laughs> didn't show much effect there either. Other one looked at the return of people from Algeria after the end of the French-Algerian War, same kind of thing. So there. Subsequent studies have pretty much confirmed that that analysis. Huh. Can you give any reason or do you care about reason? Do you just care? Um, Well, so a general thing that keep in mind is more people isn't really bad. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, big cities have higher wages than small cities. And so just because you get more people doesn't really make the economy worse. In fact, it probably makes it better. So I grew up in Canada. Canada is always trying to get more people to move to Canada. New Zealand, Australia, they're always trying to get more people because they believe that if you have more people, that's going to be good. The only reason why more people is a problem 
is if they come so quickly that you can't kind of adjust and find things for them to do. So then they're kind of crowded into a, a small set of opportunities. And then eventually employers will say, okay, well, we've got all these people, let's do something with them, you know? And so really it's a question, not so much about is more, I mean, the old idea that more people is bad, that's what we call Malthusianism. I mean, you may have heard of Sir Thomas Malthus. He was a British economist in the beginning of the 1800s who studied the uh, plague, the Black Death. And he found out that after the plague was over and whatever, 1350, wages were higher. <laughs> and so he said, well, this, this kind of shows that more people is bad. Mm. And people kind of think that that was true in the medieval era, but that was because there wasn't much for them to do. There was only agriculture. And if you had more people, eventually people were farming these farms that weren't very good, you know, pushed to the borders of the uh, arable land and so on. But in the modern economy, almost no one is using resources that are not reproducible. So almost everybody is using computers or trucks or buildings. We aren't using any, any resource that we can't scale up if we need to. So that basically solves the Malthusian paradox. Hmm. Nevertheless, for some reason, people find the Malthusian thing really attractive. I, I'm always puzzled by that. Hmm. It seems like you, you kind of, it, to you, it seems very obvious that like more people are going to lower wages, except when you think, okay, if I drive from Los Angeles to Bakersfield, wages are not going to go up. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's not the case mm -hmm. that wages are, you know, that that you that you see that there's a shortage of jobs and and too many people most of the time. Gotcha, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and my guest today is 2021 Nobel laureate in economics David Card, who is a professor at UC Berkeley, but recently received his Nobel Medal at UCI's Beckman Institute. Now back to the interview. I understand that you and UCI economics professor David. Newmark have some continuing disagreements over minimum wage conclusions. Can you share just a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, so when this study, this New Jersey, Pennsylvania study that Kruger and I did, when the results came out, there was a, it's a group that called the Employment Policy Institute. And it's um, sponsored by the restaurant industry mostly. And they basically lobby for preventing rises in minimum wages. They also lobby pretty heavily on um, not raising, you know, making sure that um, the drunk driving laws aren't too strict. So they're, they're, they're very strongly opposed to like lowering the drinking level to 0 0.05 from 0 0.08, for instance, the alcohol, blood alcohol. And so they lobby for, on behalf of the restaurant industry, basically. And apparently the, the story was that this EPI guys decided that they would try and figure out like attack our study. And so they had an arrangement with David Newmark and a, a colleague of his, William Washer, who's at the Federal Reserve in Washington, DC. And David and Bill Washer got, got some data from these guys and kind of argued with that data, which was from mostly from a small set of stores, including some that weren't in the sample that Alan and I did and some that were, that we were all screwed up and that our data was garbage and that um, it was an outrage that our paper was published. And what I remember about it most was I came into my office in Princeton, excuse me, not the building in Princeton where the economics department was. And at that time, there used to be mail rooms and everybody, you know, was before internet. So you didn't get, you know, you didn't get your email, you got your mail. Oh. And I go into this room and every single box has this great big envelope in it. And I think, oh, what is this, tax day? <laughs> so I go and get my box 
and I open it up and it's a, it's a huge big set of stuff from the CPI place with Newmark and Washer study claiming that Card and Kruger are completely, you know, all wrong and that they've completely messed this up, essentially impugning us saying that, you know, we probably did this on purpose. It was pretty, it was very, very nasty. And as I've said to, uh, to other people, that was one of the low points of my life. <laughs> now, luckily for Kruger, he was at that time working in the government. <laughs> so he couldn't really do anything. So I had to try and figure out what the heck is going on in this study? Why is it all screwed up? And so David Newmark and I have had many debates over the years about whether our results were all screwed up because our data was no good. And he, I think to this day, believes that our data was no good. And I, to this day, believe that his data was no good. <laughs> Um, gotcha. but it seems like the, yeah, it seems like the Nobel prize committee ultimately, you know, they didn't really weigh in on that, but they said, well, collecting the data was a good idea and trying to do this study was a good idea. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Um, I am unqualified to referee this. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. Yeah. You don't want to. <laughs> well, very good. Professor. You know, it's noted that you did a lot of work with uh, professor Alan Kruger and you actually acknowledge that if he was still alive, that he would have been another Nobel Prize winner for that. You guys did work a lot together, didn't you? On many different topics, yeah. Our first project was on um, school quality, the effects of having higher school resources on uh, student uh, earnings later in life. And um, we were very proud of a project we did showing how very under-resourced schools for African-Americans in the Southern states caused them to have lower earnings all through the 1960s and 70s and even into the 1980s because those people were you know, educated in the 30s and 40s. And, and we did a lot of sort of grunt work putting together the data on the schools that they went to and trying to relate those together. No. Uh, that was the first thing that we uh, worked on. And he and I had both independently done some studies of minimum wages in the late 80s. And we decided to get together and uh, do a do a study when we found out about this New Jersey increase in the minimum wage that was coming. Gotcha. Boy, there's a whole new listening, I think, these days for work that you're talking about and just this, um, you know, situation of inequality, diversity, inclusion. So thank you for that work. And Professor Kruger was also involved with the Clinton and Obama administrations as, uh, as an economic leader. And then I was, you know, very sad to see that uh, he committed suicide in 2019. Did, did you have any idea? Did, I, I didn't, I, to tell you the truth. No, I, uh, was, I was probably more surprised than virtually anybody um, about that. And, uh, uh, you know, he'd, um, he'd kind of hidden that aspect of his, his life from, from many people. And he was a very influential economist. He had been the head of the Economic Council, the President's Economic Council under Mr. Obama. And I suspect that if he had lived, he would have been in the cabinet for Mr. Biden. He was a you know, pretty uh, talented and um, engaging speaker and advisor and so on. So it was a huge loss, I think, to economics and to Princeton and, and labor economics, my field as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that acknowledgement. How about today, you know, have you done any studies on the national debt or you, do you, it, it's, you know, just no. From, no. From, no. So in, in terms of your colleagues, I mean, there are economists who say 
that national debt doesn't matter. And then there's others that say it does matter. Do I have that right? Yeah, I um, I think what this, this is an example of a topic where um, it's very, very hard to envision a New Jersey, Pennsylvania kind of study or a Mario Boatlift kind of study. Um, there are, you know, very, very rarely anything that says, okay, I'm just going to suddenly give you a lot of national debt or cancel a lot of national debt. I guess in principle, it could happen. And so that whole set of questions about, you know, big picture things that are idiosyncratic to an economy, what, what's the level of national debt? Economists try to answer through a combination of theoretical models that they've developed and some inklings of evidence. But I've never been able to really fully understand exactly how those pieces fit together. So I've kind of stayed away from that side of economics. These last five months since you were awarded the Nobel, have they been completely different than anything you've experienced? A medium different or no, not very much different? Main thing, oh, I've had to do a lot of interviews <laughs> like this. Um, and I've gotten more requests for letters and evaluations, things. Academia is obsessed with evaluations and, and trying to get outside reviews and things. And once you have a Nobel Prize, you become, you know, you're the same person the day before and the day after. But for certain purposes, I think it's perceived that, that your opinion matters more, uh, which is probably unfortunately not the case. But <laughs> so anyway, I've gotten um, more of those kind of requests. I had a, probably a few more students that wanted to take my class. Unfortunately, I'm not entirely sure that's the best choice of a reason to take a class with somebody. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, and 2021 was a very good year for you because you were also elected as a fellow to the National Academy of Science. How did that feel? Was that just as gratifying for you or, you know, how was it? Um, I didn't think too much of that. I mean, uh, I think National Academy of Science is a bigger thing if you're a physicist or a chemist. In economics, historically, they very few economists are in the National Academy of Science. And the ones who are, are these ones that do the theory stuff, mm. really super mathy. Only in the last couple of years have they had anybody that does empirical research like I do gotcha. in economics. They have empirical researchers in sociology and demography, but in economics, it was the other side of economics, or one of the other sides of economics. Yeah. Gotcha. Is there anything that, you know, you, you've done so much, you've been a major influence in this area, you've been an editor on major economics periodicals, is there anything that's percolating for you that you still, you know, anything that you haven't done that you really like to do? Um, <laughs> well, I'm retiring. <laughs> <laughs> That's an announcement. It was announced before. Well, oh. it was known before. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So this is icing on the cake. So, you know, when will you be done with teaching? This is my last semester. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. It's been a tough semester. The The students are a little bit worn down with COVID. And right. Yeah. So it's been a, been a kind of a tough semester for me. Yeah. Gotcha. Wow. So what are your plans? Uh, well, I'm reminded of, a, I have a PhD student. We used to have one of 
student finished their PhD, they would have a defense at Princeton. And then the student would, one of my students, an English student, the name was Melvin, Melvin Coles, came back for his defense. And uh, somebody asked him that question and said, well, Melvin, now that you've got your PhD, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I think feet up and telly on. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that again? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> feet, feet up telly, television. Oh, okay. British people call the television the telly, right? You're right, 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 right. Got yeah. you, got you. Sorry. Well, well, English uh, joke. <laughs> that's okay. Well, maybe lastly, but not leastly, do you wordle? No, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I've never been um, too good at those kind of things. Bearing down on those, I, I find it a little bit hard. It's kind of like, um, like I kind of know how to play chess and and some of the you know bridge and things like that, but I, I could never. It seemed like to me like why would you spend all of your mental energy on that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I got this computer program that needs to be fixed. <laughs> Well, I will say, because I'm kind of the same way, except for my wife intrigued me that uh, it's only five to 10 minutes. So I'm like, oh, well, okay. Okay. And, uh, yeah. We've, we've kind of had some nice competitions. But of course, there's always the days when it like, it, it, it wasn't five to 10 minutes. It was well into an hour or two. And I'm like, if I have many more of those, I won't do it. But uh, I'm on a run of five to 10 minutes right oh, now. Oh, okay. So okay. It, okay. Well, that's good. I know it's very popular, but I have to say, I honestly have not been following it. It's, it's kind of like Twitter. I don't really follow that either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have any solutions for that one because I don't follow yeah. it either. But uh, anyway, well, professor, again, congratulations Wow, what a career it's been, and uh, you've really topped it off here. So it sounds like it's time to put your feet up and uh, watch the telly. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Okay, you're welcome. Yeah, nice chatting. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you again to 2021 Nobel Laureate in Economics, Professor David Card. He came a long way from being a small boy on a dairy farm in Ontario, Canada. As one UCI economics professor put it, David Card has made a huge impact on the field of economics with his natural experiments. Kudos to UC Berkeley professor David Card, and we wish him well in his retirement. And now turning the page, coming up next at the top of the hour is KUCI public affairs host Oswaldo Diaz in Spanish doing a show all about health and well-being. Esta es mucho gusto. You have been listening to UCI Conversations where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zod, 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 everyday anteaters. For an encore of this show or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at kuci.org. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening and happy trails. Now signing off with the sweet piano riffs of Fred Kaplan playing my show theme song, Signifying.